This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Your ears do not deceive you. You've just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hello there, listener. Jimmy and I are excited to celebrate the one-year anniversary of the Cryptid Creator Corner. Hard to believe it's already been a whole year already. We have some amazing things planned for year two. We're kicking year two off with a little thing we got going on with Global Comics. If you haven't heard of them yet, Global Comics is a digital comics publishing platform that enables comics creators and publishers to upload, publish, monetize, and translate their content to a global audience in multiple languages. Pretty cool, right? I'll be contributing regularly to their Friday feature segment that highlights and reviews some of the amazing projects there. Make sure to visit their website, and I'll see you there. Thanks so much for tuning in every week. We appreciate you. This is Brian O'Neill, your host for today's episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner. My guest today is writer Jude Ellison S. Doyle. Jude is the author of Trainwreck, The Woman We Love to Hate, Fear, and Why, Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, Monstrosity, Patriarchy, and the Fear of Female Power, and the recent Image Comics series, Maw. They have a new horror miniseries being released soon, again with Boom, The Neighbors, which we're going to dive into today. Jude, thanks for carving out some time to join me on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is the first interview I've done. I'm really excited about it. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I'm happy to be your first then. Um, (laughs) I was privileged to get enough uh, to get a chance to read the advanced copy of, of issue one. Um, got a lot of questions, but for those that aren't familiar with the series yet, kind of what's the elevator pitch, a little bit of just, just the rough background. Yeah. My terrible elevator pitch for it was Gilmore Girls meets Hellraiser. It's a story about uh, a queer family that moves to an old house in the woods in a small town and very quickly comes to realize that this town is hostile and unpredictable okay well let's start with the big brush concept here the neighbors right it's a concept mm-hmm. it's changed dramatically over the years right i i grew up in a relatively small town i'm late 40s now you know i mowed mr canada's lawn next door you know across the street lived tt the older cheerleader who i had a crush on my best friend was two doors down right today the house we live in we've been here for four years we're about to move again I have no idea even what the first names are of the neighbors. Um, so we live in these, you know, now quasi-friendly little bubbles, you know, but there's this profound kind of fear that didn't exist before as as we step right to our doorstep and beyond. So it kind of, why does it make that that kind of encapsulate the, the perfect environment for a horror story, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I think that... Um ideas about the collective and who belongs and who doesn't have always been kind of central to my nonfiction, certainly to my fiction as well. I think Ma was really, it was set on this commune, right? And the idea was that you could be absorbed into it and reflect it, and that might change you in ways you weren't prepared for. Um, With the neighbors, 
I was really specifically thinking about what America is like in 2023 as as a queer person, as a trans person. My mm-hmm. transition, uh, like I came out publicly, I think just the month that, that Ma's first issue came out. So okay. I was navigating a lot of new trans feelings and the feeling of just like going out in public as myself became very overwhelming. I would just be like in the grocery store being like, is somebody going to bother me here? You know, just not constantly feeling exposed every time I was visible out in public. And um, I do live in a relatively rural area, you know, so it's a different thing than it would be maybe in the city, that kind of exposure. Um, That, that position of vulnerability um, the series starts with a character, Oliver, who literally just is agoraphobic and does not leave the house. Um, of just not being able to go outside because you don't know who's going to see you or how they're going to see you or what their reaction going, is going to be. That seemed like a really intense point of vulnerability and a point of vulnerability is always fun as a starting point for horror. Well, you kind of talked about Oliver a little bit. You know, you've got this this nucleus of kind of a newer family's construction. Um, and that the story sort of centers around having moved to this new town, adapting to these new surroundings, there's a really strong tension kind of between the members of the family. You know, Oliver does come off as a little bit paranoid, understandable given the situation. You know, you're addressing not only being queer with the character, but also dealing with racism as well. So it's quite a lot, many layers to the onion, if you will. So is this a statement about families just being complicated? Because like Newsflash, we all know they are, you know, <laughs> or m- more of a narrative element to kind of feed the tension of the book or maybe even both. Oh, absolutely. No, I was thinking a lot about like what constitutes a family and how a family can look, how it can be brought together. I mean, I think that there is this sort of overwhelming ideal of, you know, uh, the white heterosexual nuclear family that it's like you've got mom and you've got dad and you've got two kids and a dog and they all more or less fit the you know they've all known each other for as long as anyone's about has been around you know like all the kids are somebody's biological kid everybody's the same race everybody's straight implicitly yep. uh, you know or explicitly in the case of mom and dad that idea of what a family should look like that sort of Norman Rockwell ideal can be weird to navigate when your family just doesn't look that way. And in some ways, you know, just can't look. Sure. Um, so I think the tension between like, what does a good family look like and how are these particular people, Janet and Oliver raising their kids and stepkids together, you know, how are these people negotiating a divorce and an infidelity in the past and shared custody and, you know, integrating a family where like some members are white and some members are black and, you know, just sort of coming together across many different fault lines to try to form some semblance of unity or alternately fracture apart and all end up in very different places. Um, That felt like an urgent question to explore just in my own life. And because so much of what's going on right now is about trying to impose that super heteronormative white image of the family on everybody else. 
Well, I really enjoyed kind of you playing around with archetypes in the story, kind of especially the the triple goddess or the the matron mother crone, which classically have been used to define, you know, life stages, uh, what it means to be female, if you will. You know, identity is an important focus in your writing. So what kind of drew you into using the the triple goddess specifically? <laughs> yeah, there's Agnes, the terrifying old woman next door. There's Janet, the mother, and there's Casey. But there's also Isabel. There are four, there are four female characters. It's like matron, mother, crone, baby. <laughs> um, or maiden mother crone baby but uh it's um the witchiness of ma was one of my favorite things ma was like i got to do a comic and i did not know if i was ever going to get to do a comic again so i'm okay. just like i'm gonna do everything i want at once. go for it yeah <laughs> with this i really i had so much actual like witchcraft and witch trial testimony and folklore that I just really wanted to pack into it. My favorite thing about this series is that like nearly everything in there that's really scary is like I can point to a specific place in folklore where it actually happens or supposedly happens. In the first um, issue, which will be out by the time people hear this maybe, um, there's Agnes is doing this thing where she's passing a snake from hand to hand and putting it on her mouth. And it is just like a creepy visual. It's like, oh no, I have moved next door to someone who likes snakes. That's that's a new data point I need to consider. But it's a it's a real thing that like if you pass a snake hand to hand and you breathe on it in I think like southern English folklore, that turns the snake into your little servant and he'll crawl around and he'll report on your neighbors for you. So that's what she's doing. Okay. I think every time I got blocked as a writer, I would just like pick up an old book of like terrible folklore and find something disgusting that people actually did like rub a bird on a sick person and then impale the bird on a nail is, is another one like, that's going to be in there at some point. Okay. And I would just, you know, that's all the witchcraft is just like, I really want people to know that people have had horrible ideas about how to cure illnesses over the years. <laughs> and I'm now familiar with all of them. <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, having a background in cultural anthropology, this was really fun for me because um, yeah. there's a whole lot of symbolism. I mean, everything from the snakes that you just alluded to, toadstools, there's even masks that are used and utilized mm. in there. There's a whole lot of grapes, which, okay, that's echoing some you know, Greek Dionysus kind of kind of stuff. So <laughs> are, there, are you playing with any specific tradition trying to stay true to any specific tradition or you just kind of riffing off all these familiar things to just add that that sense of overall sort of dread to to leaving your your front door <laughs> oh no no the grapes are blackberries i was trying to be really specific with this and i think you know like it's hard to go into it without giving away like every single thing i'm thinking but yeah, there's sure. a ton of specifically english and irish mythology okay in here um, blackberries, anything with um, with thorns could be a gateway for something bad. Hawthorn trees are in here a lot too. So, yeah. Oh, I have to go back and look for that. I think there was the. Um, I don't think we're giving too much away. This is more of sort of a tease, but um, I was trying to find a reference. I think it was Kananok, which was the. There's a goblin in the story. We'll just leave it at that. That is reference. <laughs> um, and did I pronounce that right? I, all I could find about that was that there was an English town. So it's an actual it. town. Yeah. Yeah. What? Oh my gosh, that's a made-up 
uh, Irish word. That, okay. <laughs> that like I typed it into Google Translate. It's uh, I can't actually pronounce the last one because it's G-N-C-O-C, but it just means Hound of the Hills. Oh, okay. Just, See, yeah. I always am looking for Easter eggs and stuff. So, and it's anything that's folklorist is going to immediately catch catch my eye, and I'm like, okay, I got to go Google this and see what's going on with that. So, yeah, it's uh, near Wolverhampton, I guess. And the only thing that that is, I think, relevant to the town, I didn't do a lot of research because I just didn't find that much, right? But um, is that there are Germans that are from the war that are buried in a cemetery there for I. I don't know the exact hmm. reason, but anyway, hmm. yes, yes. I'm something. very, I'm very weirded out by it being an actual town. Now I want to know about it. Well, you'll <laughs> have, to, you'll have to look it up. Very sinister to me. Or they're alternately, they're very nice people and they're going to be mad at me that I just think the name of their town is very spooky and I've chosen I'm, to misrepresent them. Well, um, there's also a, a modern interpretation of the changeling mythology too. Um, again, we don't want to give too much away, but it, it seems like a the perfect vehicle vehicle to talk about identity, you know, and perceptions in, of who and what we are and, and what the world seems to to want to define us as now seemingly more than ever before, um, as we're all connected via social media and what have you. So, you know, we're kind of conditioned to to define ourselves that to the nth degree. So what drew you into the change, changeling mythology that you wanted to pull it in and do a modern spin on it? Right. I mean, there's there's so much there, right? Um, I think, again, without giving too much away, it did feel like a way to explore not only identity, but the question of how well you actually know the people that you live with. There's um, the famous case of Bridget Boland, Bridget Cleary, and one of the people Casey's texting with in the first <laughs> issues named Boland, to call that in. But um, she was was burned to death by her own husband because he was convinced that she was not her anymore. And his evidence was, you know, she's too pretty to be my wife and she's three inches taller. The idea of that subtle thing of just like you, I have to look that much further up to see you and therefore you might be horrifying. That feels like a little bit, that feels like such a paranoid image of somebody who is themselves, but not exactly themselves. And how far off the mark does somebody have to get from the person you know before you start to feel like it's not them anymore? And obviously, you know, change and transformation. I'm the same person I was five years ago, but physically my body looks very different. Um, If I were the same body but a different person, would that change be bigger? Would it be smaller? Like, how, how would you tell? the disjoint of body and soul, you know, to be very grandiose about it. And the question of how you actually know the people around. Again, I think that that's parents and kids knowing each other comes into it a lot too. Not to be like everything is ripped from the headlines, but I was writing this at a time when there was a lot of public debate about trans children Mm -hmm. and about, you know, whether parents should somehow try to isolate or punish or lock up their kids to keep them from thinking they were trans, whether they should try to convince them to, you know, cause it themselves essentially, and how abusive the tactics you use for that could be. The Bullen, Bridget Cleary uh, story sticks out to me because it's a story about a man who needed to control his partner. And these were stories about parents who needed to control their kids. And the idea that 
all of these parents would say, no, but I know my kid. There weren't any signs. You don't understand. I'm a parent. I know my kid better than anyone. If they were going through this, I would know. Mm-hmm. You know, that idea that like you can live with someone every day and they can have a big hulking thing in them that you don't know about felt like, you know, maybe this was was one way for me to start telling that kind of story. Well, I mean, obviously very personal to you. You know, you write a lot about being a parent. I, I caught up with um, some of the stuff you've been writing for Medium, you know, and I'm curious, we've got five issues to work with here. I've read one. Is this ultimately a story about hope that, you know, things will ultimately change, that we can leave our kids with a better, more tolerant tomorrow? tomorrow? Or are we way beyond thinking we can get there anywhere near 2023, right? Um, there's at least a little hope because you're also playing off, as you mentioned, you know, this, this thematic um, concept of rebirth, right? So. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately this story to me is about, it is about some of the same things in that, in that medium piece. It's about the idea of family as potentially redemptive and family as potentially destructive. Um, and to me, you know, I'm not the most social person. Maybe you can tell. <laughs> um, the idea that you have to find these tight bonds, these people that you do trust to take care of you, and that not all of them are going to be exactly like and not all of them are going to face the, exactly, the exact same issues in their life, you know, and that a family can look messy and complicated and everybody can bring their own trauma and their own backstory and their own bullshit into a family. And yet, in the face of a hostile world, a world that wants to delete your individuality or absorb it or, you know, force you to fit a mold, family is one of the few places where you can be when it's working completely who you are and have that held and accepted and seen. I think that the the central thing about this story, which draws, you know, there's a lot from my childhood in it. There's a lot from my current experience of being a parent in it. Everybody in there is somebody that I've been at some point. Um, they, they need to find a way to be there for each other, whether or not they perfectly understand each other or even, you know, always get along with each other. And finding a way to do that in the face of overwhelming obstacles, I think is just, it's a, it's a good story and it's a meaningful story. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, our stories are our greatest legacies in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm curious, always curious about, um, you know, my own kids' perceptions of me as a parent, you know, Mine was listening to a recent podcast. I was I was picking him up and it was it just happened to be going. And he asked why he didn't get to see that version of me, right? Mm. Which which stung a little bit, you know. And I said that he gets to see that unfiltered version of me, you know, the one without the mask where all the scars of of life are laid bare. So do you ever worry about your child looking back and reading your work someday down the road and I don't because I've written so much about my parents and like my mother was like, at a certain point I had to ask her to stop reading things I'd written. And she's like, well, then I'm going to have my husband read it. And he's going to tell me if you said anything embarrassing in it. And I'm like, well, fair enough. (laughs) I did. Shocker. (laughs) But you know, like I have the right to define what my childhood was looking back on it. And my mom was like a parenting columnist when I was a toddler. There are, 
stories about little toddler Jude. Apparently I was a handful. Like, so when my kid is old enough, she's going to see the record that I've written, but she's also going to be in a position to write her own record and I will not stop her. She'll be on TikTok. People will know every horrible thing about me. She will rebel. She will be a Republican. She will be an accountant. I don't know. She's going to find some way to be somebody I don't expect because that's what kids do. Yeah. But that's her right. She has the right to say what her childhood was like for her, just the same way I have the same way I have the right to say what it was like for me, you know? Yeah. Well, you've also said that this was about what scared you as a kid. So what was that exactly? <laughs> I'm being oh, nosy. So you have to things. forgive me. So many things. Um, I mean, I think that there's just a lot of, I think, especially in Casey, I'm somebody who's, who's, um, lived through a messy divorce of my parents and somebody whose whose family has kind of come together and reconfigured in a few ways. I think the anger in Casey comes from me as a kid. I think that she is someone who sort of embodies the radical anti-family proposition in this story that she refuses to pretend that things are okay. And she refuses to pretend like the, the first thing she says to Oliver. And I think the only thing she directly says to him is I am not going to call you dad. You know, like I'm not going to pretend that this is how I wanted my family to work out. I'm just here and I need to make my peace with here, but I'm, I'm not going to pretend that this is ideal. Um, so there is a lot of Casey just wanting to rip the edifice of the family apart and her sort of depressive realism of like this, we could pretend that this is a happy little postcard family, but it isn't and it never will be. That comes from me. Generally, the feeling that there were like bad things under the house. Okay, okay. <laughs> that also comes from It's like, it's, on the one hand, I am both drawn to and uncomfortable with the concept of a nuclear family and my ambivalence goes into this. On the other hand, I am dead scared, bad things living under the house. And the woods things being in the woods mm-hmm. i'm scared of people knocking at the door when my mother's not home unfortunately okay. she never is now because i'm a 40 year old man yeah. <laughs> you know so like there's there's a lot of just like deep personal this particular mythology around um you know things that live in the wild and that take people um they that that just is all just stuff I've been, I've been collecting those stories since I was a kid and I've been fascinated with them since I was a kid. I wonder if kids still experience that as much, you know, we, we're talking about this modern interpretation of it. And, you know, I certainly grew up with the, you know, there was the thing in the closet at, at you know, at night when the lights were off. And, you know, I think of of our generation, I think that was relatively common i don't hear that as much from kids today do you think that's been supplanted by the neighbor if you will (laughs) for for them you know like is that the unknown um yeah um there's a really good movie uh by a director called jane schoenbrunn called we're all going to the world's fair and i think i would suspect that schoenbrunn is um is younger than i am just based on how the movie plays out but um that is ironically like the the heroine of that movie is also casey but um 
it's about how kids sort of live their lives through screens, how they're very visible and also very intensely isolated at the same time. It's about this teenage kid who is trying to like explore her identity or her depression by getting really involved in online creepypasta. And I think that that's the fear for kids now. It's not that there are things out there that they can't see, but that they are, you know, perpetually being constructed through this like surveillance network of like, there's always eyes on them and they're always faced with the duty to confront and create some palatable self. And like, how much room is there in there to just be a kid and be a fuck up? You know, I think, I think that we're all going to the world's fair really nicely gets into that. That's, you know, if I weren't a million years old, maybe I would understand those fears better. But I watched that movie and I felt like I understood them. I'll have to check it out. I'm not familiar with that one. I do think you could put at a certain age, obviously they have to be a little older, but I think you could probably put the Babadook in front of pretty much any teenager and then they would want to sleep with the lights on. But <laughs> I love the Babadook. It's one of my favorite movies because like I've been in conversations with like moms in horror. And every single mom who works in horror will be like, my favorite movie is The Babadook because it's mm-hmm. the most realistic movie I've ever seen about parenting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's not like it really kind of is. Yeah. It's very, very grim and upfront about what the hard parts of the parenting are like. So I think teenagers would be scared of The Babadook because I'd just be like, this is how your mom feels. <laughs> so make sure you have that contraception, kids, because you don't want to get kids before you're ready, right? <laughs> Well, I wanted to touch on the visuals a little bit because they have such a distinct style to them. I'm familiar with uh, Letizia. Am I pronouncing that correctly? I think Letizia, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm familiar with their work from House of Slaughter. It's this like a glove. So how did you find yourselves working together on the project? It was so interesting. I had always sort of pictured this because I was thinking about like Guillermo del Toro, right? Like I was thinking maybe very dark fantasy and I had pictured it having a really elaborate overstuffed visual style and Letizia's work is so different so minimal and expressive and it just um they just they knew that this was the right thing and I knew that it was the right thing when I saw those first pages especially um there's a guy who comes to the house you know in the dark and knocks on the door (laughs) and you know that's it it's really hard for me to convey how that scene is scary because it's just like, it needs to feel David Lynch. It needs to feel like this person shouldn't be here. And I don't know why, because what they're doing is normal, but it shouldn't happen. And that panel of just like the person showing up in the dark on your porch gave me primal terror. Leticia strips away so much that's inessential. Um, and focuses so much on just the expressiveness of the characters in the moment on exactly what you need to be seeing. But I think it made me a better writer instead of just doing what I normally do and just coming in with like a bucket of research and dumping it on the page and assuming that's going to work. I really, in order to hit my mark and, you know, provide ideally a platform for her work, I had to focus on stripping away everything from the script that wasn't like, here's the emotional moment, here's the nugget of the panel. This is what we need to see. Um, so yeah, I really, her work is exceptional and it's so, you know, it's got like that twiggy, witchy, Blair Witch twig structure quality to it that I find mm-hmm. just gets the mood across really well. 
Yeah, I I can't wait someday as a creator to be able to to see those completed pages and just being like, damn, that's some magic <laughs> right there, you know? Yeah, that's always like, that's my favorite part of this entire thing is that like, I'm sitting here writing my little script, you know, about goblins. And, um, and that feels really wonderful to me. And I'm excited that I get paid for it. And I secretly feel like, you know, I con my way into this job. But then to just actually see that, no, there are real people working on this. There are actual talented artists who are like taking my, my script about, you know, wigs and scary forests. Seriously, <laughs> scary blackberries, you know, but um, it's so awe-inspiring and it's just, you know, it really, it, it gives you a sense of humor because you know that like at the end of the day, every comic I've ever really loved, like there are lines of dialogue that have mattered to me, but it always comes down to the image. It always comes down to the, I'm just creating a scaffolding for that image to arise, hopefully, you know. Well, I saw in the Atlantic uh, that it characterized your book Trainwreck as very likely to join the the feminist canon. Um, oh yeah. I know, but considering the role in establishing, you know, the the feminist blog Tiger Beat, um, where I got to pause actually to to bow to the rather catchy header of Kumbaya Motherfucker Central. That that's <laughs> that's really good, right? Um, it was it was lady business, but then we had so many trans people on staff that it was like we don't want it to be about ladies anymore. So then it was just like Kumbaya Motherfucker. It's perfect. <laughs> I love it. But as more of a, a feminist focused writer, you know, what attracted you to the comics medium as, as the right vehicle to, to express these ideas? Um, you know, it was just something where this was like one of those quietly buried passions in my okay. life where like I, um, I was really close coming up with somebody that I would just like always trade my favorite comics with. And my first serious boyfriend loved comics and like made me read Scott McCloud. And I wound up in college just like getting really enchanted with the form because of, you know, the idea that you could tell a very simple story through images. I think, you know, honestly, both Ma and the neighbors go back to some of the earliest comic scripts I was writing like back in college. Um, but I just sort of assumed that because I didn't have publishing industry connections and I didn't at the time look like what people thought somebody who wrote or read comics should look like, you know, like I, I could see no way into the industry. So it just like became one of those things where like you put the scripts away and you become a little bit bitter and you become a journalist and, you know, you focus on doing what you know how to do. Right. It's in the year 2008. Anyone can start a blog. And for some reason, you can get hired by a newspaper if you blog well enough. And that's that's how I got to where I got to. And then, you know, after I'd written this entire book on horror movies, entire newsletter on horror movies, Boom contacted me like you really have. You seem to know quite a lot about like the structure and plot of horror movies. Have you ever thought about comics? And I was like, you know, just got my eyes wide and was like, I need to frame my yes in such a way that I'm not screaming and, you know, scaring them away. But <laughs> it was just, it was, you know, I, I just got lucky, you know, and that's, it's unfortunate that I got lucky and, you know, there's so many people out there waiting to get lucky, but 
I do think that there's there's something good about the internet and that like Al Kaplan, Al who did Ma's, you know, images, he he had an indie comic. He wrote it, he drew it. And, you know, you can get out there with a blog. It's just not as easy. Yeah. But that's yeah. that's what happened. Is that an answer or is that like me traveling up my own butt for 15 minutes of airtime? No, no, it's, it's <laughs> definitely an answer. I mean, it's it's been something I've been curious about. Different pathways, you know, for different people who are getting into the comics medium. And I'm always also curious um, about representation in the medium, right? And with respect to to queer creators, I feel like there is a we're undergoing a bit of a renaissance right now. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, and I, I'm curious, and I've never actually asked anybody, right? Is where's the glass ceiling? You know, did did we did we already transcend that? Are we close to it? You know, how do we know? Does it matter? I mean, I think that there's there's a danger in viewing each and every trans creator as like, oh, this is our representation, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I do think that in some ways for for specifically queer people, you know, and genre media and nerd spaces have also always been very queer spaces. Like there's always been a really strong pipeline running through there. So I'm not as worried about it. You know, I mean, I think that you could, you could make the argument that like there's a certain variety of queerness that tends to be like white and middle class and nerdy that has, you know, and I'm, and I'm saying, I'm describing myself with all three of those (laughs) words, but um, you know, that that tends to be overrepresented mainly. And there are other ways of being queer in the world that we could and should be exploring and other creators out there who we could and should be like boosting their work. Um, But it's, I think that hopefully, we are reaching the point with not only queer literature and queer representation, maybe I should speak specifically to trans literature, trans representation, where not everybody has to show up and do their first book on like, okay, here's what being trans is. Mm -hmm. This is Mm -hmm. me. This is me having my transition. And this is why I'm not a lady. You know, that just, that was something that a lot of very brave and generous creators did versions of that in their work. You know, Maya Kababe, genderqueer, like Kababe has taken endless amounts of horrific bullshit simply for being a non-binary person who wrote about being non-binary and made a comic. But there's also room for people to come in with really specific stories. I don't think that The Neighbors is everybody's trans story. It's about being middle-aged and a dork and a dad and it's not only about Oliver and Oliver's journey you know like Janet is really important to me as someone who embodies being a mom and being worried about her life fading away into being you know quote-unquote just a mom the way our family our culture likes to trivialize and ignore and look down on women who have managed to survive to adulthood and have offspring you know, it's Casey's story and Casey's rage and feeling that the world around her isn't right and that she just wants to rip it apart. You know, the monster is always part of the part of the story and the monster is always the part of the story that says some of the most important things and then expresses the feelings that are most dangerous to feel. Casey matters and Casey's part of my trans story. 
and Janet's part of my trans story, and Isabel is a baby, and I at one point was a baby. Sure, yeah. And I want you to like not focus on like figuring out what being trans is, even though you do like I think in issue two you see Oliver take a shot, and he's a big baby, and he makes his girlfriend give it to him. I take my own shot now, thank you. But um, <laughs> but like that's. You know, that's one of the things that's in there, but this is a story that has that classic haunted house setup of here's a family, they're running away from something, they've moved to a place that will bring them directly into conflict with that thing. That can be a trans story too. It doesn't all have to be like 101, here's what a trans person is, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that there are many people in the horror field and elsewhere, you know, in the horror field and the comics field, who have worked to broaden the field of representation so that not every trans person has to start off writing their story as the trans person. I don't think, you know, I thank God, I don't think that I'm fit for that responsibility. (laughs) I am not a universal figure. I make no claims to have a universal experience. I just, you know, am who I am and I like horror and I like comedy, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot to put on any one person just like to, you must represent in this way. Um, Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, what else out there are you seeing in the comics universe, you know, about feminism, about queer representation that's giving you hope? I am looking forward. Like I went through a phase where I just like read as much as I could right before I started to write The Neighbors. And then I was like, anything else, because I don't want anyone else's voice in my head while I'm doing it. So, but I'm really excited for Sarah Galley's new series. Um, there are, you know, there are a lot of new series that I'm excited for. I hate I hate questions where it's like, who are you reading or what are you reading? Because I'm always afraid that there's going to be something really obvious that like I should have said and then I didn't say it and somebody's going to be offended or hurt or just just know that I'm out there. I'm I'm reading your work, whether or not you want me to, whether or not you feel happy about this, I'm there and I'm rooting for you in my creepy, creepy way. So if they put it out there, you're going to find it. That's that's what I'm hearing. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it and I'm going to read it and I'm going to rate it on Goodreads, five stars all around. Good on you for trying. And, <laughs> Gold stars yeah. for trying. Yeah, yeah. There, there's the parent in you coming out. I think. So, where do you see yourself? You know, continuing to to push the medium. <laughs> That's a big question, right? I think that um, I am learning to be more humble with my aspirations for pushing the medium. I, you know, I do want to keep telling stories about characters who aren't often um primarily like i come to this as someone who really loves the horror genre and who really loves the way that it allows us to get down deep into stuff we're not supposed to admit stuff we're not supposed to feel stuff about bodies and primal attachments and primal terror right and i think that there's always going to be a huge amount of freedom in horror for marginalized people to because it's specifically the genre where you don't have to present yourself as like a nice worthy respectable person you have to bring your darkest shit to the table and just 
throw it down. Mm-hmm. And that's why it can tell really exciting stories. Um, but I am learning to be more humble about how I approach the form. Every comic has its own logic. It has its own specific way that it wants to be written. Um, and just to pull back and to stop telling stories, you know, the way that I tell them as an op-ed writer or even as a reporter sometimes where it's like, here's my point of view. Here's a three-page speech explaining my point of view. Comics is, <laughs> these, writing these scripts has been very good for me because it's just like nobody cares. Yeah. about a long ass speech you need to show people what happens and why it matters and you're not allowed to editorialize and that's you know i want to let i want to let comics redefine me byron mm-hmm. there you go <laughs> yeah and your editor of course because I'm, I'm hearing that <laughs> i'm hearing there's been some long sessions i'm just guessing and reading between the lines there <laughs> i've had amazing editors uh sierra han has been so so good to work with on both of these books Alison Gronowitz Caroline who you know like I, I I've been really really happy in my editors I can absolutely trust the, the team at Boom to just you know in a very gentle way break it to me that like I've come up with a dumb idea but when the idea is super dumb <laughs> Well, uh, is there anything on the horizon for 2023 that we can look out for that you're doing that you can talk about? Of course. Um, it's it's this. I have other things in the oven. I don't know what's what's happening next, but okay. Neighbors is where I'm at right now. Right. Where can folks find you online? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter if you are, you know, if you're brave, um, at by Jude Doyle. But you can also go to my website which is judoyle.com. I have a newsletter, judoyle.ghost.io, where I write about horror movies. Any of those places really can spare you from my Twitter presence while allowing you to keep track of what I'm doing. I think that's, that's going to be a good thing for you. Well, as long as Twitter lasts, yes, we'll be there. Um, my last question today is about the hustle, you know, the hustle of being and maintaining a career as a creative. You know, normally this is specific to comics, but um, as you write other things, you know, I wanted to leave it open for you. Um, there's someone out there listening that is trying to make it with whatever creative endeavor pushes them the most, right? So what piece of advice do you have for them? I would say start, you know, this is just maybe old internet head advice, but like look at what part of this you can produce on your own. You don't, everything is a learning process. Your first thing isn't going to be your best thing. I've written some stuff that's, you know, hideous. And some of it, you know, I'm lucky in that I was like, a random 20 something in 2006, it was hideous. And some of it, I was a well-known writer and it was still hideous. You know, that, like, that was less lucky. But, um, but like, just start with the part that you can produce yourself. Consistently practice that craft. And as you're ready, put it out there. We do unfortunately live in a golden age of indie publishing where like, if you put it out there and you consistently practice your craft, the good stuff does get found. No, I'm really, really happy that, you know, I've seen some people who were just, you know, writing comics in their basement come up with a good idea and they post it and it gets like 2,000 retweets and look, now you got a job. Good for you. Yep. You know, um, that's that's what I would say is that like you can't be subject to gatekeepers. You can't be subject to waiting for somebody else to give you permission. If you want 
to be a writer. If you want to be an artist, then you are a writer. You are an artist. You might not be the best one ever yet, but you are who you are right now. You just got to start making stuff. Hustle hard. <laughs> well, Neighbors is going to be hitting stores soon. I love the book. Um, it will probably be one of the few that I actually pick up the single issues for. So, you know, I normally I wait for trades, but like this is really good. Um, the problem for me is going to be that, and I normally don't encounter this, but there's so many really pretty variant covers for this. I got to say, yes. they're they're fucking beautiful, right? They're so good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll probably get the Franny cover. one. The Franny one is, yeah, that's my Twitter banner right now. The, the Casey's eyes, like there's something so haunting about them in that image. I, yeah, the the variant covers are going to keep coming, I think. And they're still going to be incredibly beautiful. But the Miguel Mercado main cover, I really love that. That was one of the first times I actually got to see the family together was just the cover of Issue 1. And I was like, oh, they're people. <laughs> like the humanity of of everybody and the personality of everybody comes through really strongly. So keep an eye out for the, the Miguel Mercado cover. Really good. I will definitely check it out. I love the, the Franny one, like, blew me away. All right. Well, Jude, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and, and putting up with me and all my questions. Okay. <laughs> no, I loved it. Thank you for putting up with me. I know that I ramble on a lot, but you know, no, no, you were a joy. You're natural. <laughs> at it. You're, you're good. Well, everyone who's listening, order the book. You won't regret it. This is Byron O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.